Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Hey, I do want to, I'm doing strategic initiatives and announcements right now for a moment. Um, the, uh, The first is this, August the 2nd, please put on your calendar, it's a Wednesday evening, uh, five and six, and then from six to seven. Many of you know that we're in a partnership with Oak Brook Elementary School that, I mean, I can tell you the story one day if you need me to, but God divinely invited us into this relationship years ago, and he has done. Anybody who says that Jesus is banned from our public schools has not been to Oak Brook Elementary School. Because we get to go in there and work with children and love on them and, and take Jesus. And we get to, and now we're not bullies. We don't, we don't take these in and beat people over their heads with them. We, we walk into relationships and love on people in Jesus' name. And on August the 2nd, we're getting to do that. Half of the population of Oak Brook Elementary School's kids come from two apartment complexes. And uh, this August the 2nd, we're doing what we call Love Gave Back to School. And so we're raising resources, um, and we're going to go to those two apartment complexes to distribute those resources, backpacks. If you go to our website, you can find it, okay? If you go to um, our, uh, our to Realm, our in-house kind of uh, social media, you can find it, um, the details of it. But I just want to encourage you to mark it on your calendars, research it, dig it up, and, um, and be a part of it because it's going to be a good and beautiful thing. And we'll, we'll actually have opportunities to work side by side with teachers from the school that day to distribute uh, to the community. And, uh, and we can speak Jesus' name out there, uh, just so you know. Uh, another thing that I want to uh, bring to your attention that um, we don't spend a lot of time on Sunday mornings talking about needs that we have, especially for the physical plant around here. But I have got to do this one. We are starting today a campaign that we are calling Comfort Zone. And some of you are wondering, what's the, what's the thermometer for? Well, this is our Comfort Zone thermometer, and it is going to help us think about uh, a need that we have here at River Bluff. Uh, th- this building is a little over 20 years old, and so the HVAC units that are attempting to cool this space right now um, are that old or older. And... Uh, They have been being held together with duct tape and shoestrings. Now, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We have in our church um, somebody that I think of as the the HVAC guru in the low country. His name is James Thomas. Uh, James worked uh, for years for Berkeley County Schools. Uh, He has designed uh, systems. He has installed systems. He has overseen systems and maintained systems significantly larger than ours. And he takes care of us in ways you can't imagine. And James has said to our elder team, it is time, boys. It's just that time. Um, they, can't, they can't go much longer. And, and things like parts from, I mean, you can't get parts for old stuff and all, all that kind of fun stuff. So um, one unit, you know, we have two units here. This unit has three um, compressors in it, only one works. So you may be warmer on this side of the building. I don't know. I see everybody said, I'm sitting over here next week. Well, this one has two units that work, but yesterday they were down. So we were in here. This place was packed during a funeral. It, it, was, it was warm, 
okay? It was a little bit warm. And so James got it back up. Uh, he came up yesterday evening, found out how to throw some more duct tape on, and it's, it's running again, okay? But it, it's, it's going to fail. Now, here's the plan. We've got, we're going to replace one unit, this one. And we're going to cannibalize parts from this one to try to keep that one going another couple of years, okay? We, we are good stewards, I'm just telling you people, okay? And so that's what we're, that's our, our goal. The one unit will cost us $50,000. That's not miscellaneous pieces to get it installed and some of the others. That is what we are having to pay train to get that unit here. Now, once it's here, it'll be a plug and play. So installation will not be that crazy. And we're going to need some help doing that because James is going to oversee that. But we, we need your help raising $50,000. Okay? Just want to put that out there. Now, they've, uh, our team under uh, Kim Blayton's leadership has designed some special envelopes for our campaign. They're on all the bulletin boards around the church. Um, and I've got uh, one. Now, some of them are marked, you know, $500. Some of them are marked 50 bucks. Some are marked 25 Some are marked nothing. Some are marked 5000 Giving in a moment like this is supposed to be equally sacrificial, not equally monetary. Okay, so some people can't, so what some people, for some people would be $25, for somebody else maybe 5000 And we're just asking our body to give equally above and beyond your tithes and offerings. Because we don't want to disrupt our budget and the ministries that we're trying to do to accomplish this. And we believe that God is going to, to give us what we need here. We believe it so much, we've already ordered the unit. Now you're saying, What? Well, here's the deal. It takes 26 weeks for them to, 27 weeks for them to build it. Actually, they told us 27 to 32 weeks. Okay? So we, we've, we've ordered it. Okay? Trusting that we're going to see that $50,000. Now, I told you about all those envelopes. I have one $50,000 envelope right here. And so if you want to, it's just going to sit there. Okay? And if equal sacrifice for you would be 50K, bring it, baby. And we'll go ahead and buy both units. Okay? But it's a need we have. Now, another need that we have that we gather every week to engage in is we need a word from God. We need God's word to wash over us. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38 so that you can get washed a little bit today. And I get washed a little bit today. Genesis chapter 38 an unbelievable story about a family, a very strategic family in the, in the story of God. Now, please understand this. This book is not about people. This book is a story of God that has contained within stories of people as they encounter and interact with God. And some of the people in here have greater influence throughout the course of history and the span of humanity under the direction of God. And so we look at a unique family. They're so unique that they show up in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Their influence and stewardship of God's grace and mercy uh, is so vast that it shows up in the last book of the Bible in Revelation. And they show up in the first three verses of the opening of the New Testament in Matthew. I want us to begin with the end in mind. So if you would, read with me out of Revelation chapter 5. It's going to come up on the screen. John, the apostle John, whom Jesus loved, 
was exiled to the Isle of Patmos because of his testimony about his love for Jesus. He spoke Jesus, baby, all the time, every chance he got. And because of that, he got exiled to the Isle of Patmos while he was on that island. Um, now, this is the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the, the epistles, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He has this vision while he's on this island. Jesus comes to him and gives him this vision of what it's going to look like, human history coming to an end, and Christ returning. And so uh, this is part of that vision in chapter 5. John says, I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Earlier we found out that one was God, the Father. It says, it was written on both sides, fastened with seven seals. I also saw a powerful angel calling out in a voice like thunder, is there anyone who can open the scroll, who can break its seals? There was no one. No one in heaven. No one on earth, no one from the underworld able to break open the scroll and read it. And friends, this scroll was representing the destiny of humanity. And so John said in verse 4, I wept, and I wept, and I wept, that there was no one found able to open the scroll or able to read it. Verse 5, one of the elders said, don't weep, but look, the lion from tribe Judah the root of David. Now, I want you to keep that, that name, the tribe Judah, the tribe of Judah in your mind. The root of David, that's King David, tree, he has conquered. This, this person from the descendants of those, he, he can open the scroll. Now, jump over to Matthew chapter 1, the gospel of Matthew, the opening of the New Testament, the new covenant of grace in, in Jesus. Verse 1 says this, this is the family history of Jesus Christ. He came from the family of David, and David came from the family of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. If you're reading from King James, it'll say, so-and-so begot so-and-so, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. This is all those begots. And then in verse 3, um, it, it goes on, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Their mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of, of, of Ram. Now, and that goes on and on and on for 17 verses of these kind of begots. In that list, there are four women. Women are almost never mentioned in ancient genealogies, but there are four women here. One of those is Tamar. Now, there, there are three names that I want you to pay a careful attention to, and they're found in verse 3. And it was Judah, and it was Tamar, and it was their child Perez. Father was Judah, mother was Tamar, their child was Perez. And these are the genealogical records of Jesus. And I, I want to stop here for a moment, but hold those names in your, your mind. Now, let me ask you a question, personal question. If you were tasked with writing out, you know, in, you know your, your family genealogy, or maybe you were going to be more artistic about it and do kind of a tree, you know, with all the branches and all. Is there anybody in your extended family whose name you probably would just want to leave off? Just wouldn't want them to show up on your family because you'd be embarrassed, as they say. You know, in the South, they, they tell me that all of us who are in the South, we all have this, you know, crazy uncle hidden in a closet somewhere that, we, you know, we don't want to know about. Um, every family, you know, has someone like that in their extended family that there might just be a little embarrassed by to, to know that they're related to it. 
Now, if you cannot come up with someone's name in your family, good chances you. Just say it's all. Possibility. Need to think about that thing. Maybe check it out with your relatives there. But the, the, this deal of genealogy, Jesus' genealogy, his record, as you're going to see in a moment, is like, oh, my word. How? Why, why would Jesus put that in his book? Why, why wouldn't he just kind of skipped over this? Because Jesus wants you today to know that even in the worst of human brokenness, his glory can shine, his healing can come, his power can be released in his name. And he wants you to see that. Now, we're going to read the entire chapter of Genesis 38. And I'm going to do it fast because here's why I'm going to read it all. And then we're going to go back and do verse by verse. But I'm going to read it all because you just need to hear it as a story. Because it's like, it's like crazy. You just, you just got to hear this. So just bear with me um, as I read it quickly. But we'll go back and unpack it. Verse 1, chapter 38. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. I'm not going to explain what that means. You can figure that out on your own. Verse 3. So she conceived and bore a son and named him Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Nonan. And she bore still another and named him Shua. And it was at Kezib that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her. I know that's weird sounding, but we'll get there. Um, and raise up offspring for your brother. Verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so it came about that when he went to his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, this is what was, Judah was thinking in his head, I'm afraid he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in his father's house. So basically, he was responsible for her, but he sent her away back to her father's house. Verse 12, now after considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to the sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend Herod the Duomite. And it was told to uh, Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. So she removed her widow's garments. She covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in the gateway of Enain, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. For she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, Therefore, I will send you a kid from the flock. He basically said a goat. And she said, Moreover, will you give me a pledge until you send it? Will you give me kind of a promise? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that are in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he went into her, 
and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garment. When Judah sent the kid by his friend, the Aduamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. So he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road in name? But they said, There's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There's never been a temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this kid, but you didn't find her. Verse 24. Now it was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized him and said, she is more righteous than I. Inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. Speaking of Judah, he didn't have relations with her. Verse 27, and it came about that time she was giving birth that behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out his hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first, verse 29. But it came about as he drew his hand back that behold, his brother came out. And then she said, what a breach or a breakthrough you have made yourself. So he was named Perez. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I know some of you showed up here today thinking, I got a weird family. It don't get much weirder than what we just read, folks. It just, it, it really doesn't. And Jesus, the Savior of the world, the one whose name we speak, the one who we sang about, he made sure that that story was in his book. He made sure that you knew that their influence, their godly influence, would eventually span the test of time so that at the day Jesus is returning, the promise of him coming from that tribe of Judah would be known by all. It, it, it launched the opening of the New Testament, this, this broken, messed up family. See, these are the kinds of stories that would embarrass people, embarrass you that they were in your family and those kinds of things. But the Bible goes out of its way to include them, to include those, those stories, to, to include the names of, of women, which in all other ancient cultures of that day would not have included their names because they weren't thought of as having genealogical value. But Jesus mentions them in his story. Jesus wants them in there. And it causes us to have to ask the question, why? Why in the world would God put that in his word? These, the, these stories that are scandalous like this. He does it because it, it reveals to you and to me who he is. Not who we are, but who he is. It reveals his grace. It reveals his mercy. It reveals his power. It reveals his character. It reveals his capacity to change a human life no matter how broken. And the other thing that it does is it proves 
he would never be embarrassed of you or me. No matter what we've done, no matter what's happened to us, God, in his grace, would never be embarrassed of you, no matter what you've ever done or what you'll ever do, because he loves you that much, and he will receive you if you will draw near. So he invites us all to draw near to him in the middle of a really strange story like this, because he promises that no matter how strange, no matter how out there, no matter how deep the brokenness, he can transform your life. He can change you. Now, we live in a culture and in a day where the world will tell you people can't change. Leopard can't change its spots. Well, the world does not know the power of our God because he can change any life. And the proposition that's being made here is, will you release your skepticism and your cynicism? Will, will you quit looking at your husband thinking, ah, he'll never change? Will you quit looking at your wife and say, she'll never change? Will you quit looking at your parents or your children thinking they're beyond hope? Or your neighbor or your coworker? Because the power of God can change the brokenness in any human life if we will step in, you know? You're not just dealing with people who don't have capacity to change. We live with hope in the God of all creation. And so we've got to stand in that, believing this truth. This is the big idea for today, that God's redemptive grace can change anyone's story. Anyone's story, their life trajectory, it can be transformed by God. So this morning, I want to invite you to, 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 to kind of dive in, to sit in as we walk kind of verse by verse through this. And I want to start with Judah. I want to start with Judah because he, he goes through a radical transformation. Now, Judah is uh, one of uh, 11 other brothers. There's 12 of them. Their, their baby brother is a guy named Joseph. And he is, he's, he's really kind of favored by his father, which isn't a good thing. Um, the other brothers know it, and they absolutely hate Joseph. And so, well, I'll, I'll let you read it from the Bible. Genesis chapter 37 coming up. Joseph was sent out by his dad to find his brothers and take them some, some refreshments, if you would. So Joseph went after his brothers, found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They planned to put their baby brother to death. And the plan went something like this. We'll kill him. We'll take some of his blood. We'll put it on that very special coat that daddy made for him. And we'll take it back and, and tell dad that uh, a wild animal killed him. So they plotted that. Well, one of the brothers came up with this thought because he said, well, if we're going uh, to out him anyway, if, you know, if we're just going to off him, why don't we make some profit off of the thing? And instead of killing him, let's just sell him into slavery. And so that's exactly what, what they do. Look at verse, because I want you to know who came up with this idea. Look at verse 30, uh, 26. It said, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal, you know, his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him. Because he's, he's saying kind of, well, that way we wouldn't really have to kill him. You know, he is our brother on flesh. And then it says, and his brothers listened to him. So they sell him to this passing caravan. And Genesis 37 basically ends with Joseph being dragged off uh, as a slave um, to, you know, never be seen again, quite frankly. And then chapter 38 starts. Verse 1, and it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers 
and visited a certain Adulamite whose name is Hirah. Why, why would you imagine Judah would need to leave home? I think it's because he couldn't look his daddy in the eye anymore. I think knowing that he had sold his brother into slavery and lied to his dad that his son had been killed, that he left. The prodigal son, you know, goes off, basically, to do his own thing, to do what he wants to, the way he wants to, when he wants to, you know? Why? Well, look at, look at verse 2. Judah, as he's gone now, he's left, he says, Judah saw there was a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and he went into her. So he takes a Canaanite wife, which had been forbidden by God for the Hebrew people. Okay? You need to know that. But it had been forbidden by God. And the other thing that I want to point out is, historically, in the Hebrew kind of family, um, the, the father helped his sons find a wife. A good, a good wife. So, you know, so, sometimes, let's just say, I'm, I'm just going to say it out loud. Sometimes as young men, we can be stupid. I used the S word. I'm sorry. Um, we, we cannot be bright. And if I had married the first girl that I thought I was going to, I would be in deep doo-doo these days. Okay. I, I just would. And so they, they needed help. And so Abraham helped his son find a wife. Isaac helped his son find a wife. And then he helped his son Jacob find his wife. Judah didn't want no part of that. So he leaves. He does his own thing. He goes against the will of God. He gets a, a, a Canaanite wife. It says he took her unto himself. And uh, verses 3 through 5 tells us that out of that... There are three sons that are born, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And then we encounter in verse 6, Tamar. And it's interesting because verse 6 tells us that Judah takes Tamar to be a wife for his son Ur. So it wasn't good enough for him, for his daddy to help him, but he just goes and picks, just hand picks this woman for his, his oldest son, right? And look at verse 7, what it, what it says happens. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Apparently, he wasn't good at picking out, you know, women for his son because the problem was not the woman, it was his son. I don't know how evil Ur was. I don't know what evil things he did. The Bible does not tell us. But he must have been one wicked dude for God to take his life when he spared Judah who had sold his brother into slavery and lied to his father that his brother was dead. This, he must have been one evil guy for God to take his life, but, but he did. I, I don't know what it was, but in verse 8, Judah tells his second son, Onan, you go in to your brother's wife and you perform what's called the brother-in-law duties. Now, there was actually a law. You can go back and read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. I think it's verses 5 and following, but there was a law basically that, um, and it literally translates into the brother-in-law law, um, that you would, if you were um, uh, kind of the second brother and your brother, older brother had married and he died and uh, had not provided his, his wife uh, an heir, uh, a male heir, that as the, the, the second in line, you would take her as your wife. 
And your firstborn would not be yours, your heir. It would be your dead brother's heir. Okay? I know it's weird. I, I know we can't even hardly wrap our minds around it. And, you know, I know that many of you are just so grateful that we don't do that today because you're thinking, oh, my gosh, my in-laws. I mean, you can't even imagine thinking about that, you know, kind of thing. But that was, that was in that day, okay? And um, so it, it's important here that, that we understand that the, 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 the firstborn child of that union would not be that man's son. It would be his dead brother's son. And for Onan, it meant, see, with his, his older brother dead, his inheritance got increased because now he would be the oldest son and uh, there were, it, the pot would only get divided two ways kind of between him and Sheol and so he's looking at that and he's thinking I'm not going to give I'm not going to give my older brother an heir and so the Bible tells us that he comes up with this plan if you look at verse 9 it says Onan knew that the offspring would not be his and so he went into his brother's wife he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. Onan said, I ain't playing by these rules. Onan said, I'm going to do what I want to, when I want to, how I want to. Sound like anybody else in the story? A little bit like his daddy, maybe? You know, he, He's kind of doing that because he didn't want to divide the inheritance. But here's the, bigger, here's the bigger issue in this. The big story of God that we talked about. There was this promise that God had made back in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham, and he passed that on to Isaac, and he passed that promise on to Jacob, and he passed that promise on to Judah and the other brothers, and this was the promise. God said this in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. The promise tells us that, they would, that Abraham's family would be the, the, the birth of many nations, many great nations. And that was true for, that promise was true for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now even for Judah. I'm going to make a great multitude out of you, and through you, the world will ultimately be blessed. Now, what kind of active faith does it take to live out that theological promise from God? What kind of active faith do you have to have to step into that promise? The only thing you have to do to obey and receive that promise is have babies. That's it. I mean, seriously, that, that's, that's how hard it was to step in and receive that great promise of God. All you had to do was be willing to have kids. So when Onan engages in the activity that he chooses to engage in, uh, he is dissing the purposes and plans of God Almighty, not only for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but even for himself and his lineage. So it was, it was a despicable thing. But the Bible says he went into Tamar. He used Tamar. He got what he wanted from Tamar, but he was not willing to give to Tamar what she wanted and what, quite frankly, she needed to survive an heir. He wasn't, he wasn't about to do it. And so the Bible tells us um, in, in verse 11, or excuse me, in verse 10, that this displeased God, and he took Onan's life. And so here's what we have now. We have Tamar. She's twice married. She's twice widowed. And now her father-in-law is going to add insult to injury. And in verse 11, we read this. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house 
until my son Shayla grows up and he had this thought. I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. She was actually Judah's responsibility. But he says, get out of my house. Go back, go back to your daddy. Just, j- just go. Until, you know, my other son's old enough to, to, to get married. Now here's, I just want to, I need to pause here for a moment and ask you a question. Can you fathom, can you fathom the depth of trauma that Tamar endured? Tamar was married to two of the most wicked men recorded in the Bible. They were so evil and wicked that the Lord had to take life from them to protect others. That's how wicked they were. And she was married to those two men. Now, some of you are saying, my marriage is kind of tough, but probably ain't that bad. Okay? She, was, she, was, she had a life filled just in her marriages with trauma, I would imagine. And then she had the trauma of both of them dying, being taken away. And then she had the trauma of facing a childless future, which, you know, they didn't have life insurance policies in those days. Their life insurance policies were the children that they would raise who would take care of them in their old age. That was their life insurance policy plan. They didn't have it. And so she would be destitute. Her, her life would be miserable and horrible. This is the kind of trauma this woman was experiencing. And friends, there are people all around us. There are people in this room today who are broken and paralyzed by trauma. And the church too often runs from it instead of walking people through it. And I just want to pause here and and just talk about this for just a second. There There are lots of reasons, but there are three that I want to point out this morning of why I think the church doesn't want to talk about trauma in the church. And we've got to. The first one is this. We don't talk about trauma in the church because it makes us uncomfortable, frankly. It just, it makes us uncomfortable. The, the impact and the effect and the outflow of it. See, we live in a culture that celebrates, you know, hard work, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, figure it out. And too often, the, the church follows the culture instead of the other way around. And one of the things that in the church that trauma survivors do is they, they'll plug in really, really deeply and work really, really hardly to stay really, really busy so they don't have to deal with their trauma as a way of covering it up. Because, you know, everybody knows, you know, if you just kind of model after Jesus and just give and serve and all that kind of stuff. Friends, Jesus is the kind of Savior who comes and says, you need to take rest in me. Before you get all busied up out there, and not deal with what's going on on the inside. Jesus is concerned about what's going on in you because he wants to set you free from that, those traumas. And and please hear me say this. There are capital T traumas. There's like post-traumatic stress disorder traumas. But there are also little t traumas. And little t traumas compounded over a lifetime, those things, they compound exponentially and paralyze people. And people cannot figure out, why am I continuing to fall in the same patterns of sin? Why do I wreck my own life? And it's because we won't step in. And the church hides from dealing with this thing called trauma. second reason that I think we don't want to talk about trauma in the church is because we think we need to somehow protect God's credibility. 
that somehow God's not big enough to protect his, his own name, you know. And because, you know, we know that God's word says all things work together for good, so we got to be those who make that happen. No, we don't. God says he does that. He, he's the one who does that. And friends, let me say this. There is power in this book, the words in this book. But you, you can't just hand somebody this and help them think they're going to be set free from trauma. There's not a, a simple memory verse in here that takes away the trauma, that removes from people the overwhelming shame, that takes away from people the, 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 the nightmares, the, 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 the deep depression. doesn't happen that way, but God has pathways. There are pathways and plans that God, God gives to us to help walk people through that. But the church, we can't look the other way. We've got we to step into this. A third reason that I think we don't as a church so often is because we don't understand it. We, we, don't, we don't dig into it because it's, it's a little scary. We see the outflow of it in, in, in people's lives, and we don't know what to do. Friends, we've got to be a place that creates lots of spaces for those who are facing trauma to walk it out. And we need to walk out our own. We do. All of us. All of us have some kind of little T traumas. And so we need to, we need to provide space in our Bible study classes, in our small groups. One of the things I'm so thankful to God for is that God has blessed us with a counseling center. And I talked to Cindy this week, and she's the director of our center. Um, the majority, I don't think it's every one of them, but the majority of our counselors are licensed, practicing counselors. Um, they have all been trained and specialized in trauma therapy. Several of them have also been trained in uh, a system of, of prayer for inner healing. So they're bringing prayer into the counseling at the same time. In fact, we're going to host a, 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 it's a national workshop for counselors to, to learn how to use prayer in their, in their ministry, if you would, um, in August. So pray about that with me that as God uses this space to do that. But we, we've, got to, we've got to step in and offer places like that because there are people like Tamar in our church, people who have suffered great trauma, and, and God wants to meet us there because he showed up for Tamar, and he'll show up for anyone now, here's what happened. When the lingering and the outflow of Tamar's troubled life, her, her trauma, finally spills out in the middle of the fear that, that came along with it, she engages in some very risky behavior. Remember, now Tamar was sent back to her daddy's house by, by uh, Judah until his son Shelah got older, you know, but... There was that verse that told us he didn't want her in his house because he was afraid his younger son would die. See, he thought, do y'all remember that, that Hall and Oates song about the woman who's a man-eater? That's who, that's who Judah thought Tamar was, that she was a man, they're going to come for you, you know, kind of thing. That's, that's who he thought she was. He did not realize, he didn't see the way God saw. He didn't realize it was his son's problem, and his son's problem were uh, generationally linked because they were just they were repeating daddy 
They were just basically repeating daddy. So she sends her away. And then when his son reaches the age, he'd given his his word that, you know, she she would marry back into the family. But he did not keep his word because he believed a lie. He was dealing with his own trauma of the death of his son. He blames Tamar because it's easy. Now, I want you to look at how Tamar's trauma manifests, how it comes out in in her life. Verse 14, so she removed her widow's garments. She covered herself with a veil. She wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. She realizes Judah's lied. That's just what Judah does. Shelah had come of age to marry, and she's not been invited back. And so her trauma overwhelms her. She kick, it kicks in to fear, and so she devises a plan. She was supposed to be under the covering of Judah's mercy, but Judah withheld the mercy. And so now she's facing a life of shame and loneliness and childlessness. And so she hears... Judah is going up to Timnah to shear sheep. Now, friends, for shepherds, the sheep shearing, be careful if you say that fast because you can get in trouble. But they they go to to do their sheep shearing, and their sheep shearing is like like going to the bank for them. That's where they make their income. This is when it finally pays off. And so the sheep shearing season, say that three times fast, is, is... a time, quite frankly, sorry, but it's a time of debauchery. They're rolling in dough. They're partying going on, all that kind of stuff. And Tamar knows this. And she knows the lifestyle of her father because she saw it in two of his sons that she lived with. She knew that the apple didn't far, fall far from the tree. And so she goes. She devises this plan to go to dress up in such a way that she would be noticed by her father-in-law, but he wouldn't know who she was. Look at this, verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. She had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come in to you. Again, you can figure out what that means. And it said, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, therefore, I'll, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, moreover, will you give me a pledge? She didn't trust him. She knew the man. She, she, she didn't trust him. Will, will, you, will you give me a pledge until you send it? And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her. So basically, Judah does this with Tamar. He engages in this act. I think it was an act of impulsivity because he didn't bring cash. You know, for this kind of thing, he didn't have anything to pay. He'd probably already blown what he had. And uh, so he gave her as collateral his cord, his signet, and his staff. And those represented his authority and his capital. You know, his financial day. A modern way of thinking about this would be, it would be like Judah gives her his wallet and his mobile phone and all of his passwords. I mean, that's basically what he gave her in, 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 on that day. And, and so it says in verses 20 through 23 that, that he leaves, that he sends back the agreed upon payment. He doesn't take it himself. He gets his buddy, that Duamite, to take it back. And so the guy goes back with this goat and says, where is this, you know, this woman that was here? And they say, there ain't never been a woman like that in our town. What you talking about, boy? And so he goes back to, uh, 
to, to Judah and, and says, they say there's never been a woman like this. What, what, what's up? And, and Judah tells him this. He says, basically, let's just let it end because if we push the issue, I'm going to be seen as a laughing stock. Judah, again, was more concerned about his image than anything. What people thought of him. Not who he really was as a man, but what people thought. What it, what it looked like uh, on, on the outside. Verse 24. Three months later, three months later, the Bible tells us that someone tells Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar is with child by harlotry is what it says, that she's pregnant because she's lived this promiscuous, unfaithful, immoral life. And the Bible tells us that Judah flies into a rage. You say, Joe, it doesn't say that in my Bible. How do you know he's in a rage? Because he says, burn her. Drag her out and burn her. And even in that day, that was cruel punishment. Even for that ancient day, that was horrible punishment. So he's, he's in this rage he has already killed her off in his heart by sending her out of his family. He might as well do it in reality. And so he does this. But, I mean, look at the double standard. He enga- he's the one who engaged with her. He's the one who got her pregnant. But he just slides that under the table. But he's going to raise the banner over this one. And we're going to have a public human burning. It's going to be a big deal. And so in verse 25, it tells us that as they're literally dragging her to burn her at the stake, she sends these three things, his signet, his cord, and his staff. She says, will you take these to my father-in-law? These belong to the baby daddy. Okay? That's who this belongs to. See if he knows who this is. Um, Basically, she says, excuse me, daddy dearest, do you know who these are? And of course he knows who they are. And in this moment, Judah could either go deeper undercover. He could do like King David did. He could still put her to death and almost nobody would be the wiser. Just like King David did to Bathsheba's husband Uriah when he, you know, had an adulterous affair with her. It, 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 it could have happened, but Judah doesn't. He's found out, and I want you to see what happens, verse 26. Friends, this is important to grab hold of. Judah recognized him. He recognized those, those things were his, and he said this. She is more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I. It goes on to tell us that he did not have relations with her again. Friends, that statement from that man that she is more righteous than I would have never come out of the mouth of a prominent man in that culture unless God had moved. Unless God had done something in a very, very powerful way. She is more righteous than I. She is in the right, I am in the wrong. She's righteous and I'm not. It's actually judicial language because he had the judicial authority to sentence her to death and basically what he's saying, it's not her, it's me. And this was the beginning of life change for Judah, and it started with an act of contrition and repentance. That's where it began. It began with the reality that God had moved. Friends, if you're, if you're looking for life change to come into your life, the first thing you've got to do is this. You've got to look for catalytic kingdom moments, and then when they come, you've got to step into them. 
Judah saw this moment in time where his life could be transformed and changed, and he stepped in. And one of the first signs that you step in to something like that is you quit blaming everybody else. And you say, they're more righteous than me. They're more righteous than I. That's what Judah does. He steps in. And Tamar is saved. She's carrying the messianic seed, the lineage of Jesus in in her body. But at this moment of confrontation, Judah was able to see who he was really. And the Bible said that he, he actually honored Tamar in the days ahead because he did not have relations with her again, but he cared for her. He took her into his household is what that verse is telling us. And some of you are saying, well, how do you know his life changed? Because if you continue to read the story of Joseph, uh, the story of Joseph takes place starting in chapter 37, basically ends in Genesis chapter 50. Most of those chapters are about the life of Joseph. When you get over to chapter 44, something very interesting happens. I'd encourage you to go read this later today. I'm just going to fast forward, spoiler alert kind of thing here. But basically, in, in Genesis chapter 44, um, uh, a famine breaks out in the land. And Judah and his brothers have to go to Egypt to beg for food. Well, they get there, and their brother Joseph, who was sent into slavery, they figured was dead, he is now second in command in all of Egypt. Second most powerful human being on the planet. And as soon as he sees his brothers, he knows who they are. But he's all Egyptianed up, so they don't recognize him. And so he, he wonders, have they changed? Is anything different about them? So he gives them a series of tests because he can't open his heart to these guys if, they, if they're unchanged. And one of the tests at the end eventually is this. He, he finds out he has a baby brother. He didn't know he had, named Benjamin. He says, you got to go bring that other brother back here to me and I need to see him I need to put eyes on him make sure he's okay and then I'll I'll give you the grain you need well they go back and tell you know uh, Jacob and Jacob says can't do that they say we're going to all start to death Benjamin's going to die so he sends Benjamin with them when Benjamin gets there here's what happens uh, Joseph basically sets the stage so that he's able to say well because of your sin I'm going to keep your little brother as a slave he's going to be my slave so I'm sorry and the, the brothers know if we go back and tell our dad this, he, he'll die. And so they don't. And one of them starts a negotiation with Joseph. He, 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 he goes into negotiation mode. I want you to, to read it with me. Look at this in verse 33 of chapter 44. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. So this brother is saying, here, let me, let me take places. Uh, let, let me be the slave, send, send my baby brother back home, back to his brothers. Do you know who, who made that statement? Judah. Judah does. Judah is now willing to risk his own life to save his baby brother, the one that his father really loved, Benjamin now. He's, he's willing to sacrifice himself, everything else. He, he, he is now binding the family together by offering himself as a sacrifice. Because he's been so transformed by the power of God. Judah, who was one time cold-heartedly selling his brother off into slavery, he now melts the heart of that brother. And Joseph just, Joseph weeps, the Bible tells us, uncontrollably. He sends everybody out of the room except his brothers, and he reveals himself. And you know where all of this started? It began with Tamar. 
that, that moment with Tamar. That God used this, this broken woman in her trauma to bring about healing and redemption and repentance in the life of Judah. So I want to run back to her story real quick. Give me just a couple more minutes. It says, when the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered she was carrying twins while she was in labor. One of the babies reached his hand out. Midwife, you know, put a scarlet uh, string on it. He pulled the hand back in, and then his brother comes out first. And so he's given the name Perez, which means breakthrough. He broke out first. I love what God does here because here's what this tells me. In the worst human struggle... God can bring break, breakthrough that changes everything. And Perez goes on to be the great, 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 granddaddy of Jesus, of your Savior and mine if you've trusted him, if you've, if you've given your life to him. And it, it took place because of this traumatized woman. And it took place because of the repentance of Judah and it, it brought to and led to eventually the repentance of another man named Saul, who was eventually able to declare, you know, this guy had persecuted Christians to death. He'd been a part of that movement. And he radically came to know Jesus in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He wrote these words, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinner then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Friends, God, God has that kind of power to transform a life, any life, every life who will walk towards him. See, here's the deal. God used Tamar, the traumatized one, to display his gospel and to give us Jesus. And Tamar, I hope you see the gospel story in this story. Tamar was the one who was being marched away to her death. And she was innocent. Jesus was drugged through the streets of Jerusalem carrying his own cross. And he was innocent. And he was bearing your sin and my sin, the sin of the world. So that you and I could be given life. That we could come to that moment when we would give our lives back to God. Just like, just the same kind of repentance that Judah went through. That breakthrough. And God wants to bring breakthrough for you. And all we have to do is step into it. We have to step into it. We have to confess it. We have to repent. We have to realize, I can't save myself. We have to have those moments and we have to, to walk in to that. And see, we see Jesus, who was despised and, and rejected, just like his great, 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 great grandmother Tamar was. But Jesus came to save, to heal, because he, that's, this is who he is. He was, Jesus became this man of sorrows. God in the flesh becomes this man of sorrows. To be your savior, to be mine. And I think that's worth thanking him for, celebrating, praising his name. And so we want to close our service today doing that. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite our worship team up. And as I pray, you just prepare your hearts. Lord Jesus, we come thanking you. Thanking you that in your sorrow, 
and in your suffering and in your sacrifice, salvation came to us. And that right now, God, you are holding that salvation out, maybe to somebody here in this room who's never trusted you. Maybe somebody in this room who's a little bit like Tamar, who's been traumatized by this world, by the brokenness. Maybe abused physically or emotionally or sexually. Maybe God just uh, traumatized through a, a very painful circumstance or a season of their life, traumatized, God, by all kinds of things in this world. And you've come to bring salvation, to bring healing, to bring hope. And we just want to come and worship you. And I don't know your story, but I do know God's story. And that his story is that he can change your story and bring healing and hope if you will let him, if you'll trust his son, Jesus. And you can do that right where you're seated. While we're singing, you can just cry out to Jesus, Jesus, save me. And the Bible tells us that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord in that heart can be saved. But for most of us, we've made that decision, but we just need to step in, lean in to this man of sorrows and celebrate the salvation that we have in him. Bless his holy name. Jesus, we come. We come to worship you, to praise you, to thank you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.